Well, today I have a very special gift for all of you. I don't know if you've seen when on Oprah she gave everyone a car. It's kind of of that magnitude. As I was putting together my sermon, I had two dominant ideas that I wanted to cover, and I couldn't fit them into one sermon, and I thought, I'm just going to give you the gift of giving you two sermons this morning. So you're welcome. Um, it literally will be two separate sermons. Uh, the first sermon is the what of Romans 1, 15 through 17, and the second is going to be the why. So here we go, sermon number one. Uh, Martin Luther, even once he became a Catholic monk, says he felt, he, he says in his own words, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. The priests at the time said when they would see Martin Luther coming to the confessional, they would all cringe, hoping he wouldn't choose them because when he came in the confessional, he would stay for hours wanting to find every single sin so they could finally have everything washed away and he could feel righteous in the presence of God. And Luther said because of this, he said, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. I was angry with God. And then in 1517, he is there, he is studying the book of Romans, he's studying this very passage that we are looking at, and he said at that moment he began to understand what the righteousness of God really meant, what it really entailed, and he said as a result of this passage, he went to having a love for God that was as great as the hatred he formerly had, specifically for the phrase, God's righteousness. So we want to look at this passage and see why it was such an influential uh, verse for Luther and for many people in the Christian faith. This point of the Romans, a letter to the Romans, is the transition from where Paul is saying, here's my plans and my purposes, what I intend to do when I come. And now Paul, instead of saying, when I arrive, I want to talk to you about the gospel, Paul actually jumps right into it. And he begins sharing them with them the words of the gospel. And he says of this gospel that he is eager to proclaim the gospel to them. He's already indicated in Romans chapter 1, verse 3, that the gospel has something to do with concerning his son. Probably the clearest layout of exactly what the gospel is, and I feel like I should put the teens on the spot because for the last three weeks we've been reviewing this. I hope they would get it. The gospel consists of, according to Romans chapter 15, verse uh, 1 and following, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the appearing of Jesus is a way to validate that. And so Paul says of that gospel, I am not ashamed of the gospel. See, Paul knows when he preaches about the death, burial, resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. I'm wondering if somebody would close this curtain right here, either that or go move two vehicles, whichever is easier to do. Um, <laughs> Paul, Paul says that he's not ashamed to preach the gospel. He says when he talks about the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, there are certain people who will give him a negative reaction. I think that's explained in 1 Corinthians 1.23 when Paul says, We proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. I want to start by talking about how the gospel is foolishness to the Gentiles. You'll see an image there. This is a piece of graffiti that was found in Rome, sometime put there between the 1st and the 3rd century. And as you'll notice, there's a man on a cross, but he has a, the head of a donkey. That's not a very complimentary way to paint someone. And the text underneath it says, Alexamos worships his God. The foolishness of the idea that your God would be a man who died on a cross, to the Greeks, that message is 
foolishness. And Jews, to the Jews, Paul says this message is a stumbling block. Because Paul has to put together two words that in the Jewish mindset don't go together. Christ or Messiah crucified. Christ meaning power and triumph. Cross meaning weakness and humiliation and defeat. Paul puts these two words together, words that don't belong together. For us, it would be like fried ice or an illiterate scholar or tasty coffee. Words that should just never, ever go together. And Paul says this is a message about Christ crucified, the Messiah crucified, and the Jews, to them, that's a stumbling block, this idea and this notion. But Paul says, hey, despite what I might receive, I'm not ashamed of this gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. The gospel is powerful in that it can accomplish what it sets out to accomplish. And the gospel is powerful in the sense that no matter what a person tries to do to stop the power of the gospel, the gospel will accomplish its purpose. And its purpose is for salvation to everyone who has faith. Salvation in this context is used in the sense of rescue. The gospel is something that will bring about rescue. And if you're going to be rescued, you might wonder, what is it that I would be rescued from? Paul tells us what we are rescued from is the day of wrath. Romans 2.5, But by your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul is saying that a day of wrath is coming in this way as he's talking about salvation. What he's saying is you will be saved from that day of coming wrath. But you might say, but I'm, I'm, I'm a good person usually. I'm an honest person, frequently. I, I help my neighbor sometimes, and so why would I be subject to the day of wrath? But if you took your behavior, and you put it beside the perfection of God, I think all of us would realize, in the presence of God, none of us can stand in a way that is righteous before God, saying, I've done perfect every single aspect of life and every single aspect of the law. Paul will later say it in this way, that all are under the power of sin. So how does one escape this coming day of wrath? Paul says it is salvation that comes from the gospel offer, the salvation that is to everyone who has faith. Faith becomes a key phrase in these words, a dominant word repeated in 1.17, Paul says, For through faith and for faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. Salvation comes to those who have faith. And faith then becomes the substance of a righteous life. And the gospel offer is available to all, but is accessible only to those who have faith. Faith in the sense that you believe this story, this story about Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and appearing. But faith in the sense that you trust, you lean on, and you depend on the God who has been at work in and through Jesus to bring about your rescue on the day of judgment. Faith in the sense that you reorient your life decisions and your life values to the reality of this Christ who has lived. Faith inclusive of confession and repentance and baptism and transformation it's in these elements of faith that Paul says that we can live on the basis of faith. And then in 117, Paul says, For it is in it, in the gospel, 
that the righteousness of God is revealed through faith and for faith. And just to give a sense of what this short passage does entail, one uh, Bible writer says, of all of the most important terms used by the Apostle Paul, when it comes to the righteousness of God, there is the least agreement among competent scholars. So this passage, you're going to have people who are going to come into camps, and it's not like any one of these camps seems to be more prevalent. Prevalent. And here's the three ways people understand this concept, the righteousness of God. Number one, the righteousness of God can describe an attribute of God. What the Gospels um, will show and reveal is that God is righteous in His pursuit of His people, that God's righteousness in terms of being equal and fair to people will be revealed. Or the righteousness of God is the righteousness that belongs to God, and that God will then give to a sinful people. He will do this in a, in, a, in a forensic or a declaratory way. He will say, you are righteous, even though God knows and understands he's declaring that, even though he understands we are not. Or the second way is very similar to the third. God has this righteousness. He gives it to people. But in this case, he, he actually makes them righteous. He imputes righteousness on them. He transforms them into righteous people. And back and forth, people will go with these three understandings of righteousness. As we unpack Romans, we will use it in the second sense in terms of we have been declared righteous by God. So the gospel will explain how people who are unrighteous can be considered righteous because in some sense, that might not seem righteous to you. Somebody does a crime against your family, you go to the judge and you say, judge, he did it. And the person says, yes, I did it. And the judge says, you know what? Uh, no punishment for you. Some of you would say, but that's not justice or that's not righteousness. How can the gospel bring about righteousness if we are unrighteous people? Romans 3.25 speaks of Jesus Christ saying that God put him forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood. And this, this language for sacrifice of atonement, what it means is that God does actually dole out the punishment for unrighteousness, and that punishment is death, but that punishment is taken by Christ himself. He is the sacrifice of atonement, or your Bible might use a big word like propitiation. I mean, he, he receives the punishment that we deserved. And when I think about the gospel in a sense, I always think of a, 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 an older, now deceased missionary in Papua New Guinea. His name was Joe Cannon. And Joe grew up in a very kind of violent background, was part of gangs when he was a young person. So, so he, he knew how to live on the street. He became a Christian, and, and he's uh, now serving as a missionary in Papua New Guinea, and there's a lot of domestic uh, violence and issues. And so people would tell Joe, you know, this, this is going on down there. And he would go, and he would literally, like, tackle the guy who was, who was um, abusing his wife or abusing his wife. He tackles the guy, and he hauls him off to jail, and they lock him up. Joe goes home, and he goes to bed, and the next day he goes to jail. And he says, what's the bail for that guy to get out of jail? And they'll say $100. And out of his wallet, he'll pull $100 out. He'll give it to the person, and he'll say, can I drive you home? And he said, inevitably, the conversation on the way home is, aren't you the same guy who put me in jail? Yep. And now that's 100 bucks out of your pocket to get me out of jail? Yep. He said, why, why would you do that? And he said that that was the best opportunity he had to explain how God brings righteousness to us. There's a payment to be made, but rather than extracting that payment from us, God himself, who is the judge himself, will offer that payment so that the righteous may live on the basis of faith. And to those who by faith respond to the gospel, Romans 1.8 says, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When the day of wrath comes, there is no longer a judgment upon them. And thus concludes sermon number one. Take a deep breath, stretch, and get ready now for sermon number two. Why? What is Paul intending to do 
through this passage. So in the United States, there are basically two ways to become president. The one is what we would acknowledge as the legitimate, regular pathway to be president. That's through a vote of all the people, the electoral college, and then you are considered the president. But there's also a backdoor way you can become the president. That is, you serve as the vice president until the president is um, he's either killed, or he dies, or he is removed from office, and then the vice president steps in to take over. And I think everybody could conclude that's the less honorable way to become the president. So 24 minutes after Franklin Roosevelt died, Harry Truman was sworn in as the president of the United States. And Truman says it took a little bit of time before people would actually recognize him as the president. A couple of days after Roosevelt's uh, death, they had in the East Room, they had a funeral service for high cabinet members. And when Truman entered, not a single person stood. Not as a sign of disrespect, but as the recognition, they believed that the president was the man in the cot casket, not the man who had just walked into the room. He had one of his advisors, he asked him to appoint a certain person to an office, and that advisor says, well, did the president tell you to do that before he died? And Truman said, no, the president's telling you right now. People did not see the legitimacy of his president. One of his primary uh, lawyers said that, Harry Trambition, that his, uh, the greatest ambition Harry Truman had was to get elected on his own right. So in 1984, he, uh, he ran for president. Uh, he, when he won the Democratic National Convention nomination, David McCullough says, for the first time since 1945, he was speaking not as leader by accident or by inheritance, but by the choice of his party. And that, of course, became by the choice of the nation. And Truman says there is a marked difference being the president by election than the president's by default or by inheritance. Now... What does any of this have to do with Romans? What Paul recognizes in the congregation in Rome is that there are some people who think there is a legitimate way to be the people of God, and there's a backdoor way to be the people of God. And the legitimate way to be the people of God means that you get to be a little bit more superior than those who are around you. And Paul looks at the congregation in Rome and he sees half of the church is sitting on the one side, a bunch of Gentiles, and half of the church is sitting on the other side, a bunch of Romans, and they can't stand each other because each think they're better than the other. And so that's why Paul is writing this letter. And of the, Rome, of the Jewish people, they think of themselves like the elected president. Paul says in Romans 2.17 that the Jews boast of their relationship to God. If you ask them, are the Gentiles Christians? They'd say, well, yeah, kind of, sort of, somewhat, like technically, but they're like the vice president who didn't really get elected. And there was this difference. And the Gentiles said, well, why do we need to show them any respect? Why, why do we need to treat them with any sort of kindness because of the ways that they're treating us? And throughout Romans, Paul is going to talk about these differences between Jews and Gentiles. And on the one hand, Paul will say, yes. Yes, there are differences between Jews and Gentiles. Notice even our text, he says the gospel came to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. He's going to say in Romans 3, 1 and 2, he's going to say, is there any advantage then in being Jewish? And Paul will say, yes, much in every way. So on the one hand, there are differences between these two people group. But on the other hand, when it comes to one's righteous standing before God, Paul will say there is absolutely no difference. There's not a legitimate president and an illegitimate president. The way one accesses the people of God, 
puts everyone on a level playing field. So that's why Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. Faith is the great equalizer. Faith means it doesn't matter about your, your ethnicity. Or Paul will say in other letters about your gender. Or Paul will say in other letters about your slave or free. What matters is faith. Because faith is the way we access relationship with God. So ask yourself this question. How much does Jewishness contribute to one's righteous standing before God? How much does Gentileness contribute to one's righteous standing before God? You're going to get zero plus zero percent there. How much does faith contribute? That's what matters. Faith makes all the difference. In other words, God has reworked the process of becoming the people of God. And if you're using old categories or old means by how that happens, it's going to create conflict in the midst of a group of people. Paul's view can be summarized by Romans 10, 12. For there is no distinction, when he's talking about righteousness, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. Now, this is one thing that blew me away this week as I was looking at it. Somebody made this case and I said, that, mm -mm, that doesn't sound right. When you look at the word faith and you look at the word righteousness and you see those words as a cluster, you're going to find that every time Paul brings up that topic, it's because people are fighting. You say, well, that's strange because every time we bring up faith and righteousness, it's because we think there's a, there's a new Christian who needs to be taught the gospel so they can come to God. And Paul says, oh man, you guys are fighting? Paul will then say, let me tell you about this thing called the gospel. Here's, here's one example out of many. This is coming out of the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, uh, 11 through 14 is the story about how uh, Peter had been eating with the Gentile people. Some folks came down from Jerusalem and Peter says, hey, okay, I'm, I'm not going to eat with you guys here in Antioch. And Paul addresses it. And here's how Paul addresses it in Galatians 2, 15 through 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So again, on the one hand, there are differences. Yet we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Jesus Christ, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by doing the works of the law, because no one will be justified by the works of the law. There's phrases that are borrowed here, similar from Romans 1, 15 through 17. Jews, Gentiles. The language of justice and righteousness is the exact same language, and then the language of faith. In fact, the exact same phrase, justified by your faith in Christ, that's the similar uh, language that we find in Romans 1.17. Paul says, you know what? When he sees people having fights, Christians amongst each other, he says, you know what? It's time for us to go back to the basics of the gospel because the gospel is a great equalizer among people. The gospel doesn't just change the nature of our relationship with God, it changes the nature of our relationship with one another. You've probably seen a picture that's similar to this slide that's going to be popping up here on the screen where you have God on one side and man on the other side and then, and then they'll drop the cross in there and you'll see this image, the cross then becomes this bridge there. Ever seen something similar to that, that the cross bridges man's relationship between God? And that's true. That's exactly as Paul is outlining and describing the gospel, that the cross does put a bridge between us. But Paul wants us to realize the gospel also builds another bridge. This second bridge can be represented by this next image, where the gospel is also what puts a bridge between mankind. 
In fact, if I could redo this image, I would put man and man on a kind of a mountainous slope because there are some people who think that they're more important than other people and they're, they're more valuable, but you get on the bridge of the gospel and you look across the bridge of the gospel and you say, what's the difference between me and him? Nothing. The only reason I have a relationship with God is on the basis of faith. And I may even look outside these doors and say, but there are people out there living in certain ways, doing all these sort of different things. And I need to realize the only thing that differentiates me from them is what? Is faith. Faith that I have accepted that they have not yet accepted. But the moment they, on the basis of faith, live, they are going to be considered righteous, which means they're standing on the exact same level bridge as me. Paul will take people to the gospel anytime they begin to think, I might just be better than you. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe there is no distinction. I think if Paul were to visit and he saw there being fighting and bitterness, arguing and jealousy, Paul would say, you know what? Let's talk a little bit about the gospel. Because if you understand the gospel, you will understand the way that we ought to be relating to one another. Maybe we'll finish by this story that I hope illustrates this concept. The story is told of a man uh, who was in Britain, and while he was there, he was invited to go see the queen. Well, he didn't know he was going to be invited to see the queen, and so he wasn't prepared. But there was another gentleman there who was kind of listening in on the conversation and said, hey, um, I know you can't afford to go buy a suit, um, but I've got a personal tailor. Uh, You go see him this afternoon, and he's going to make you the finest suit that you've ever worn. So he goes down there and he gets this suit. And then when he goes to meet the queen, he's walking around, he's looking at these other people going to meet the queen, and he's thinking, you know, that guy's suit's not nearly as nice as my suit. And, and, and that lady over there, her, her dress, she's really not dressed well enough. And he's judging everyone even on the basis that he has received a gift that was given to him. What Paul wants us to realize is that the gift of righteousness is such that when we look to our right and we look to our left at others, we realize there is nothing that differentiates me and them. I'm not better. They're not worse. We're all in this relationship on the basis of faith alone. And God wants to invite all people to live on the basis of that faith response. If you have not yet responded to the gospel, there's an opportunity to do that. Uh, To say that I I believe that my unrighteousness will only become righteousness on the basis of what Christ Jesus has done. We're going to sing a song in just a moment, invite you to come to the back if that's a decision you're ready um, to make. But before we do that, I want to offer a word of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We go with the love of God and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If you want to respond in any way, just invite you to come to the back while we stand and sing this next song.